All right, all right, people, it's good to see you. Um, in the first service, I asked whether people wanted to see some pictures of what was happening in Oxford. I just have a few to share, and that seemed to work out all right. So I'm going to do the same thing here. Um, okay, so just refresh that. That isn't Oxford. We'll get to that later. Um, so on, what was it, the 18th of January, this was us leaving Grand Rapids with some well-known faces here, Greg and Will and Gina van der Kolk and all our little kids. And uh, about uh, 15 hours later, this is us at Heathrow. Here's Robin. <laughs> uh, and all of our stuff, well, not quite all of our stuff, the, the all of our stuff part happened about six weeks later when this thing arrived outside our house in Oxford. Um, it isn't full. Um, but um, this gives you a bit of a, an insight into where we live. Our house here is, um, what you can see next to the truck is a tennis court. If you pan round to the right from there, you'd see the run, running track where Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. And um, that's the Oxford University sports grounds, and we are right opposite, so we are kind of right in the heart of the university. Um, I kind of joke with the first congregation, you, you hit about 50% of Oxford students by being close to the sport ground there on the right. Around the back of our house, there's a, there's a pub called the Oxford Blue that hits the other 50. Um, so, um, so this is our, uh, our home group. And um, uh, I guess those of you who are familiar with the project will know this, that church in England is small, and this gives you uh, a flavor for it. Actually, it's a bit bigger than this these days. But um, here's uh, Peter, Peter Comont, the senior pastor of the church. And some people here have become very dear friends to us uh, over these last several months. Um, I'll tell you a little story here. Um, just before Christmas, before we got back, a, a Kenyan girl showed up at our church um, for a carol service, and she was converted. Boom. Like that. Amazing. And you kind of look and you think, wow, you know, um, someone's given their life to Christ with no backswing. I, I really hope and pray that this is for real. Wow. God has just been doing an amazing work in this girl's life. She's been doing the ministry training course with Ruth and I in these last several months. Uh, this was her baptism service. And you can see the crowd that she brought with her people from pretty much every nation on God's earth. And Oxford is like that. We have students from 150 different nations right on our doorstep, people from some of the most unreached countries in the world. Uh, and if you want to reach people with the gospel, particularly people who are going to go on to be future leaders uh, in some of these countries, we have an unprecedented opportunity to do that. And uh, it's been amazing to see God starting that work. So here she is. Um, as Peter baptizes her and then coming up out of the water. It's just been such a joy for us. And again, we've seen several people uh, come to faith and be baptized. Here's, uh, hold on, let's just flip forward. Here's another one. Um, um, so we're just grateful to you for partnering with us. I said to the, the earlier crowd, we feel very much part of a team in doing this church plant, and you guys are such a big part of it, praying for us so faithfully. And um, we want you then to be able to share some of the joy with us of seeing the things that God is doing. Um, so um, this is a little snapshot of what life at Trinity Church is like. We're a small community. It means that we get to eat together, serve together, uh, live kind of uh, in one another's orbit, and it creates a really nice uh, community into which people feel very welcome. Um, again, very multinational. I think the first service I showed up there, there were maybe just under 30 people, seven different nationalities represented there. We pray in Italian. We worship in Kenyan, you know, where I'm... Uh, a really a church of all nations, and it's really good to see that. Here's everyone kind of making their way through town. 
I wanted to show you this, um, something to pray about for Trinity at the moment. We can't use the venue where we meet in the mornings, so it's really difficult for us to do a church that's approachable for families, and we're really praying, working hard to try and find a different place to meet so that we can do that. So at the moment, Ruth and I take our children to this church down the street from us, um, which is uh, one of the ones that's helping, helped us to do the plant. They meet in a primary school, and we saw this on the whiteboard down at the primary school as a sample of what secular uh, British education is teaching uh, the children who are our children's contemporaries. Uh, so this is from their assembly, I imagine. It says, we have the keys, the keys to history. The time has come for us to act without delay. While there's time, let's try to find a better way. What kind of world do you want to see? Nothing will change till we all agree we have the keys, etc. That's a lie. We don't have the keys to history, do we? Do you think we ever will all agree? Has history ever taught us that human beings are capable of that? Our hope is not in the United Nations, even though it's a great thing. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus. And it just depresses and distresses us to see that that's the kind of stuff that children are being fed. You see, there's, it's not okay just to have a kind of secular culture that doesn't teach anything. You're, you know, to not believe is to believe something, and this is what children are being taught to believe, to hope in themselves a gospel that will ultimately fail them. So we feel very motivated about what we're doing. Um, there's another little uh, snippet of church life here. We have Professor Douglas Moo from Wheaton College, who very kindly came and uh, taught us a full-day session on the Book of Romans, again, illustrative of some of the stuff that we're able to do in Oxford because it's such a center point for kind of academic culture. We are able to bring people in from churches all over Britain to come to this event and be blessed and be built up for their own ministry. So that's a huge encouragement. And then just a few little snippets of my world. Um, you know, probably you guys all had to kind of endure this and probably going to be enduring it again this morning, but I'm the, the, the pastor-academic combo, okay? Um, and so um, I'm doing a PhD in Oxford. God's amazingly opened the door to do that alongside being uh, associate pastor at Trinity. And this is a snippet of my world. This is the Bodleian Library, one of the oldest libraries in the world that holds a copy of every book that's ever been published. Um, and um, uh, here's my bike, <laughs> my little fold-up bike in front of the <laughs> building. And, and I show up here uh, a couple of times a week. Here's where I work. Um, Again, this building, I think, was built in like 1630. You get the portraits of all of the great scholars of the university looking down on you, making sure you get your Greek right. Um, um, this is the view from the window where I study, looking out at the Radcliffe camera, for those of you who've been to Oxford, one of England's most iconic buildings. So it's an amazing place to be, a huge privilege to be working in this city. And we hope that you know, we're, uh, we're looking forward to maybe putting together some things where we can set up uh, some opportunities for people to come and uh, and see what's going on and participate in the ministry of Oxford, uh, of Trinity in Oxford in the summers. Uh, and that's something that we'll be thinking about for next summer. Um, and then here's us. People wanted to see a photo of the family. So um, you can see the kids are just growing up, but we're all doing well. Uh, we have a little holiday this summer and we're managing to, to get on fine. So uh, thank you so much, all of you, uh, just for supporting us and blessing us with all your encouragement. All right. Okay. So let's... Um, Get out of family album mode and into Bible mode. Um, so open your Bibles, please, at, at Luke's Gospel. I had the privilege this morning of uh, introducing a sermon series on Luke, which I think is going to last you the, 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 the largest part of a year. Um, uh, I think you'll be in and out of it a little bit. It won't be Luke every week. 
Uh, but Luke is going to be the project for Crossroads. I think it's a great idea. And uh, Rod gave me the privilege of uh, uh, teeing that off for us here this morning. Um, so that's what we're going to do. I make no apology for the fact that we're going to have quite a long intro today. Um, so I haven't forgotten about reading the Bible text. We will get there. Um, but I'm going to give you uh, 10 or 15 minutes of preamble here just to get your hearts and minds uh, set for what we're going to do. So will you close your eyes with me for a moment? I'm going to ask you to try to picture a scene that I'm going to paint for you. The year is AD 49, uh, 16 years after the death of Jesus, and we're standing uh, in the market square of a city located on the far northwestern corner of modern-day Turkey, on the coast, looking out over the Aegean Sea, kind of sparkling, uh, uh, looking out towards Greece. The streets below us are bustling with traders from all four corners of the Roman Empire as goods move west to east and east to west through this ancient gateway between Asia and Europe. Aristocrats look out from their balconies uh, watching boats carrying their precious cargoes to and fro uh, from the man-made harbour while their slaves run errands in the streets below, striking deals on spices and silk, buying theatre tickets, taking messages to businessmen reclining in the bathhouse. Can you get the flavour for that? This is the city of Troas, 20, years, oh, sorry, 20 miles south of ancient Troy. Uh, now, sadly, all that remains of it today are ruins. I can show you a little bit uh, what Troas does look like now. Let's just quickly find it. All right, here we go. Um, Those of you who've been around Crossroads for a while will remember this map from some of our journeys through the book of Acts. This is the eastern Mediterranean uh, with Michigan on it there, um, with with Grand Rapids positioned conveniently just right on top of Jerusalem, kind of GR-Rusalem, the center of the spiritual world. Um, (laughs) That's to scale so that you can get a bit of a feel for how long these distances are involved. Um, Zooming in on the Aegean Sea, Um, You can see here Troas, um, to get a bit of a feel for what we're looking at. Uh, This is what remains of it today. The bathhouse that I alluded to is real, and uh, this is the main arch leading into it. We can imagine uh, Paul almost certainly would have walked under that arch uh, while he was in the city. Uh, This is what's left of the man-made harbour, and you can see the pillars that supported the piers on which these kind of Roman uh, triremes would have come and gone, uh, and then trading ships and barges as well. Um, here's a coin uh, dug out of the ground from the period. Um, and this is an interesting one. gives you a bit of an idea of the scale of the ambition of these uh, Roman and Greek architects. These ladies here help you see how big these pillars are left over in a quarry. They were never completed. Um, but this was all heading for building work in Troas. So it gives you a bit of an idea of the city that we're dealing with here. I'll flip back to the map just so that we've got that for reference. So AD 49, the reason that I've taken you to this city in this time is that this city is about to provide the setting for one of the most important meetings in New Testament history. The Apostle Paul has just recently arrived, uh, chastened actually, after a series of recent setbacks in his missionary career. A few months previously, Paul separated from his longtime ministry uh, partner Barnabas, uh, believing that They had kind of different paths to follow in terms of God's calling on their lives. Paul, it seems at this stage, had little time for the kind of hopeless cases that Barnabas wanted to take along with them. 
forgetting sadly that he himself had been a hopeless case that Barnabas had taken along with him in earlier years. Paul repents of that in the end. Uh, But Paul himself was set on striking out boldly into the Roman province of Asia, east, uh, to uh, uh, take the gospel uh, to unreached people there. But twice in the text of Acts, we read that he was humbled. In Acts 16.6, we read that the Holy Spirit kept Paul from preaching the word in Asia. And then in the very next verse, we read that he, when he tried the route north into Bithynia, uh, the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow him to do that either. And so now Paul arrives in Troas, probably more because he's got nowhere else to go than because he has any deliberate strategy. With his mission plans, apparently in tatters, and his assistants, Silas and Timothy, wondering, I imagine, what in the world they got themselves into. But here Paul meets the man who many years later in the letter to Colossians, he would describe with great affection as our dear friend Luke, the doctor. We don't know anything about the specific circumstances that brought these two guys together. It's possible, of course, that Paul was sick and that he sought Luke out for treatment. But whatever the precise details are, uh, God was working at this low point in Paul's life, working to bless Paul with a crucial new friendship and also with new direction in his ministry. And that's often the way it goes in our walk with God, isn't it? Our culture reflects, I think, maybe what's the natural instinct of our own hearts to paper over low points like that, you know, to turn everything into one sort of long story of glorious successes, moment of, uh, moments of weakness, and uh, moments when our pride is broken, moments when our big ideas hit the buffers dramatically, moments of shame and embarrassment. Those things aren't supposed to make it, make it onto the front page of the resume, are they? I imagine you don't have those things on the front page of your resume. Those are reserved exclusively for accounts of our great successes. But God, I don't think, is particularly impressed with that kind of logic. Don't send God that kind of resume. You see, God knows that our low points are very often the places where he's able to make the most progress with us. Sure, it's uncomfortable, uh, but comfort isn't always the best way of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus, is it? And so sometimes... God needs to work in us this way, kind of knocking the corners off us, sometimes taking us through protracted, painful times of disappointment and a, a difficulty um, in order to help us get there, in order to make us more like Christ. So as Christians, we need to learn to treasure these moments where we run out of road. We need to learn how to do that as a community because God is often at work in situations like these and that's exactly what seems to have happened here with Paul. At Troas, with his own big ideas exhausted, God opened Paul's eyes to the way that he had chosen for him to go forward. Not east into Asia or north into Bithynia, but west across the Dardanelles and into Europe. Paul received a vision. In a dream, he saw a man from the Greek province of Macedonia standing begging him to come and help them and bring them the good news of Jesus. And when Luke himself recorded uh, that event many years later in the book of Acts, he simply wrote this. He said, we got ready at once to leave, convinced that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Now that begs some really interesting questions about Luke, doesn't it? You see, here in Troas, Luke joins Paul and the others on their journey, apparently as a partner And as we soon see in the text of Acts, Luke is willing to place extraordinary confidence in this guy right from the very start. The first stop that Paul and his companions make 
on their journey into Europe is in this city of Philippi, which again we'll just look at briefly on the map so you know where you are. Um, Philippi there. Is that clear enough? Um, uh, up there on the southern coast of Macedonia. Um, you might remember Philippi from the story of the book of Acts. This is where Lydia, the purple cloth trader, is converted. Um, and uh, they found a little church that starts meeting in her home. Philippi is the place where Paul and Silas get into a bit of trouble with the law. Um, they drive a spirit out of a slave girl uh, and end up being in prison. We don't know how long they stayed in that city, perhaps just a few weeks. Uh, that wasn't untypical for Paul, um, certainly in this early stage in his missionary career. Certainly more than a, no more than a couple of months. But what we do know is that after Paul and Silas were released from prison and they moved on with Timothy along the coast of Thessalonica, Luke was left behind to oversee the church that had been planted there. And that's quite a big deal, isn't it? This is no small matter in Paul's eyes. You see, as as we read our Bibles and we learn more about Paul's modus operandi for setting up churches, appointing elders is something which is very serious in his mind, uh, just as it should be, just as it still is today as we appoint elders in our churches. Paul sought out trustworthy men, he writes, people who were able to encourage others in sound doctrine and refute those who opposed it. He was looking for hospitable men, self-controlled men, upright, holy, disciplined men. And that seems to be exactly what he found in Luke. It makes me think, as I reflect on it, probably uh, despite Luke's Gentile name and background, he he maybe was a Christian before Paul ever met him. Uh, It's hard to imagine how he could have reached the necessary level of maturity in just the short period of time Uh, that he knew Paul prior to this, you know, so that he could be placed in this setting ahead of uh, Silas and Timothy. You know, God can do those sorts of extraordinary things, but maybe that's the way we ought to think about it. Uh, Luke seems to have had, whichever way it worked out, these characteristics that Paul was looking for right from the get-go. And from this point forward, he becomes Paul's Mr. Reliable. As far as we can tell from the book of Acts, Luke stays in Philippi for five years. That's right. After barely just a couple of months uh, with Paul, uh, Luke is willing and able with God's help to take up position in this city where his mentor has just been imprisoned for preaching the gospel and to preach that same gospel himself, month after month, year after year. He nurtures this church that meets in Lydia's home uh, to the point where Paul, when he finally writes his letter to the Philippian church, many years later, is able to say that he always prayed for them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Can you see that safe pair of hands that was involved in that? Paul isn't writing to the Philippian church as some kind of basket case that's lost the gospel. They've been well past it. And Luke is the guy with his hand on the tiller under God. And what about those uh, after those five years in Philippi? Well, Acts tells us that Luke rejoined Paul at that point Uh, He followed uh, Paul on the remainder of his third missionary journey, traveled with him through Greece, back to his hometown of Troas, and then on from there to Jerusalem. Uh, That's the point where Paul is taken into custody by the Romans, uh, and they go on uh, together to Caesarea and then to Rome. And uh, Luke seems to have gone with him. It's quite striking as we read it in Acts. We see Luke uh, recording Paul's trials from the perspective of an eyewitness, um, Luke sails with Paul from Caesarea to Crete. Luke is shipwrecked with Paul off the coast of Malta. 
and uh, arrives with him in Rome. Luke records the details of Paul's ministry in Rome. And in the very last one of Paul's letters that's been preserved for us, the letter of 2 Timothy, uh, uh, we find Luke, uh, Paul writing uh, to Timothy, only Luke is with me. So you see these guys became friends and partners for life. This was an incredibly precious relationship for Paul. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the guy whose words you are about to have the privilege of reading in this gospel. Now, that's great, isn't it? Imagine someone with that level of access to the facts, that close to the information, and he is now your, your guide. It may just seem like a kind of, you know, Luke is just Luke's gospel. It's in the Bible. That's all we need to know about it. But if you think about the person who put this together, this is a really interesting, sparkling account for us to have the opportunity to read. Uh, And over the next year, you're going to have the chance to mine into it and see what God has to uh, say to us through it. So will you stand with me now for the reading of this passage of God's word, not just because it's a tradition in our church here, but in anticipation of what God might say to us and what he might want to do in us and through us, through these words that he went to such lengths to create and preserve for us. Luke chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken, writes Luke, to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. That's God's word to us this morning. Do take a seat and let's pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, we invite you now to teach us as we read. That's not something that we do with other books. Uh, But we are persuaded uh, that the author of this account, uh, the one who inspired Luke to write it, is alive and with us, and that we then have the opportunity not uh, just to do this in our own strength as best that we can, but to actually to step into your study, to, uh, to ask you to uh, make it clear to us what these words mean and why you saw fit to preserve them for us over this uh, such a long period of time. And so that's our hope and our need, because we know that this gospel speaks to us of things which we won't naturally, intuitively get. It tells us things that are wonderful and encouraging, but also things that are profoundly challenging, maybe even repulsive to us as we hear the depth of our need. And so we pray that you would go to work on us, help us to submit and surrender to your uh, leading as we read. And we pray that we might be changed. Lord, as this series unfolds, would you please let this just be the right nourishment for our church? You know the points in our lives that you will bring us to, the things that we will need to hear to be fed. We depend on you that you would uh, nourish us, encourage us, and enable us to nourish and encourage others through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Okay, so you're ready. Bible's at the ready, ready to go. Let's dive in. So this passage that we have in front of us today is, I guess, the the formal introduction to Luke's gospel. That's how Luke intends it to be read. And as I mentioned in my introduction, this gospel is the first of two books uh, that Luke 
ultimately contributes to the New Testament. We call them Luke and Acts, although some scholars kind of smooch those together into two volumes, Lucats, um, as you can see how tightly they belong uh, with one another. And um, if you look at the introduction to the text we just read, alongside the introduction to the book of Acts, you'll see why they do that, uh, because they have so much in common. Both books are written for the same person. Uh, You'll find uh, this gentleman by the name of Theophilus appears in Acts 1. And uh, both of them are written in the same genre. They're historical narratives. They're kind of documentary accounts of historical facts. Uh, The first book, as Luke summarizes it, looking back when he writes the introduction to the second, is his account of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. And then the second book just picks up the story where that one leaves off, carries on from Jesus' ascension, and then narrates all that Jesus continued to do by implication, um, uh, leading, directing the story of the growth of the church from his throne in glory. Theophilus himself is only mentioned in those two texts in our Bible, so it's difficult for for us to say much more about him with any clarity. Uh, His name, Theophilus, means uh, lover of God in Greek, probably means that he was either a Greek or a Roman by nationality. Um, And the title that that, uh, Luke gives him here, uh, most excellent Theophilus, uh, likely um, uh, indicates that he was a a Roman nobleman. Um, Some people have speculated that uh, possibly he was a wealthy member of one of the churches that Luke ministered in or passed through, now acting as a kind of patron for Luke during the writing of his book. We, We can't be sure. What we can see, though, as we look at the text in front of us, is that uh, Luke is drawing his material here from three different sources. And I wonder whether you saw those as I read it. The first one is right there at the start of the passage, uh, where he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So what's the source that he's got in mind there? Other written accounts. Uh, That's right, other accounts of the life of Jesus that already exist at the time that Luke is picking up his pen. He tells us that far from being the first to kind of uh, engage in this biographical enterprise, uh, he's actually just the latest among many. And when we look closely at his gospel, uh, we find that he isn't just referring to some kind of distant familiarity with these accounts. You know, like I might say, I'm aware that there are several biographies of Lady Gaga out there without implying for one moment that I've actually read one. Um, but uh, that's not what Luke's talking about here, is it? He's, a, he's a suggesting that uh, he has detailed familiarity with the content of these records. Um, uh, we find, actually, I think he has detailed familiarity with at least two, uh, and uh, to the point where he can re- reproduce verbatim large sections of them. The first one of these pre-existent biographies of Jesus that Luke has access to is the book that we now call the Gospel of Mark. It's here in our Bibles. Uh, turns out that about 60% of Luke's material comes straight from the pages of Mark's gospel. Um, and although some people argue the kind of the chicken and egg thing here that maybe uh, Mark uh, works from Luke's original, most, by far the majority of people, uh, think that Mark comes first. And that's helpful for us because that's our kind of primary clue as we go into sleuth mode here uh, for when this letter, when this book was written. Because we know with some confidence that Mark's gospel was written in the late 50s or the early 60s AD in Rome. Uh, The occasion for that, uh, the composition of Mark's gospel, was uh, that 
Mark was trying to write down uh, the recollections of the Apostle Peter, who was his kind of uh, father in the faith, who was in Rome by that time, uh, either uh, because Peter was just about to be executed or had only recently just been executed by the Emperor Nero. Um, And uh, it makes sense, doesn't it? We know that Luke is well-networked with this Roman church. He was there with Paul, uh, so it it shouldn't strike us as beyond the bounds of possibility that he found out what Luke was doing, you know, what Mark was doing, asked whether Mark could send through some early proofs you know, so that he could check it out, um, and that uh, he uh, gets a copy of Mark's account fairly early in the game. So I think that we can assume uh, the likely date of composition for Luke's gospel around the mid-60s AD or shortly after that. But Luke is aware of more accounts uh, that already exist than just Mark, it seems. He... he um, uh, uh, you can see in his gospel, actually, uh, the, the presence of other sources of information. Uh, sometime around this period, the apostle Matthew is going to start writing his gospel too. And when we put Matthew and Luke side by side, what we find is not only that both of them had access to Mark and used Mark's material, but they also both seem to have access to some other written accounts of the things that Jesus did, things that haven't come down to us in any form that we still have, but they are preserved for us in the quotes that uh, Matthew and Luke Make. So those two documents together then, and perhaps some others as well, are what we might call Luke's first source. Like good historians uh, do the world over, uh, Luke is giving us um, uh, authentic, uh, or kind of access to all the authentic accounts that are already written down of the period that he wants to cover. But he's got more. Because in addition to these authoritative documents that already exist, next Luke wants to tell us that he himself sat under the ministry of the eyewitnesses themselves. Remember Mark's gospel we just discussed. uh, The reason we take it seriously isn't so much because of who Mark is, is it? But of whose recollections Mark records. Mark is writing down the things that Peter saw and heard. And that's what makes it a really interesting document. Because Peter was there. Peter was the heart of the action. And so as we're reading Mark, we're getting it kind of from the horse's mouth. And that's the kind of information that Luke is giving us too in his gospel, because in verse 2 he tells us the events he's recording were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Look carefully at the detail there. Luke tells us these things were handed down to us. Not just handed down to you, but he includes himself in that. So he's telling us he was a recipient of this ministry He heard the original disciples tell their stories, probably many times. Uh, In Jerusalem, possibly, he heard the remaining apostles preaching and teaching about their experiences with Jesus. In Rome, almost certainly, he heard the apostle Peter preaching and teaching about his experiences with Jesus. It's quite possible that he visited Ephesus on his journeys and would have heard the apostle John preaching and teaching about his experiences with Jesus. And then add to that the many years that he spent with Paul, who though admittedly was no friend of Jesus during his earthly life, uh, had a dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that changed him permanently and profoundly. The apostles spent their lives recounting the events of Jesus' life as they themselves had experienced them, uh, carefully passing them on to the leaders of the church that was emerging around them, and Luke is one of the recipients of their teaching. And it's kind of striking, isn't it, how he describes that process in our verse. He tells us that these things were handed down to us. Now that word is a a kind of technical word here in our 
New Testaments. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses the same word when he praises his readers in Corinth for holding fast to the message of the New Testament just as he handed it down to them. So he's thinking how he faithfully kind of passed on the truth that had been given to him. He, He handed it down intact. But a more typical use of it comes in Acts uh, Acts 6, Stephen's trial, where we, we hear uh, the same thing being applied to the Old Testament. The Pharisees, who were just about to stone Stephen, accuse him of overthrowing the customs handed down to them by Moses. So that handing down word is kind of this, this chain of passing uh, information from one generation to the next, authoritative things that come uh, from God's actions in the past. So do you see here the, the kind of reverence with which Luke is approaching this project that he's got in front of him here? Luke thinks the transmission of the story about Jesus is of equivalent importance to the transmission of the whole of the rest of the Bible. And he takes his place then in this long line of remarkably uh, studious and accurate stewards of the words that uh, God has given us in order to convey it to Theophilus and to us. You know, it said when archaeologists uncovered the great Isaiah scroll in Qumran in the 1940s, uh, that they found that despite predating all the previous uh, manuscripts of Isaiah that they knew of before by more than a thousand years, uh, that the text matched those later copies with almost zero variation. Meticulously handing written accounts down from generation to generation was a kind of treasured art in Luke's culture. And it's a, uh, an art that he himself kind of positions himself in now for Theophilus' benefit and for ours. So that covers the first two sources that Luke is working with here. But what about the third one? Well, for the third one, we have to move on into verse 3, where we learn that Luke had also carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And this is perhaps the source that we find it easiest to get to grips with in our kind of CSI generation, isn't it? You know, we're, we're used to investigative journalism. You know, if there's an important issue out there, you know, go check it out for yourself. Um, you know, find out what's going on as best you can. And um, uh, that uh, seems to be Luke's strategy here too. He isn't just kind of jumping on the bandwagon, just repeating what he's heard, you know, just retweeting what Mark has said. Uh, no, Luke has got something to add. Luke doesn't just have access to other reliable accounts. He doesn't just have the stuff that came from sitting under the uh, ministry of Peter and Paul and John and uh, the others. Uh, He has also carefully investigated the content of what he's heard himself. And this gospel includes the fruit of his work. In fact, you can see it everywhere if you uh, go looking. Where do you think Luke sourced his account of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is in Luke's gospel and nowhere else? Where do you think he uh, found uh, the source for the parable of the prodigal son? Where did Luke find out about Jesus sending out his 72 disciples? Or the conversion of Zacchaeus, you know, at the sycamore fig tree? Or Jesus' appearance before Herod at his trial? Or the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus? The answer, more than likely, is independent research. He went and found the people who saw these things happen or heard Jesus say them and wrote it down. In Acts, actually, I think that we can see Luke doing this. Westy drew this out when we did our Acts series back in the day, and it really struck me. In Acts 21, Paul and Luke uh, travel back to Jerusalem together. And um, as they go, Luke records a couple of interesting waypoints 
on their journey. In Acts 21 verses 8 and 9, we read about a brief stopover in Caesarea at the house of Philip the Evangelist. So if you ever wonder where Luke's account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch came from, my guess is right there. You can picture the scene perhaps over dinner. Philip holding court with his four unmarried daughters while his guests soak up the stories of the early days of the church. And as he talks, there's Luke, moleskin open, taking notes. Don't mind me, he says, I'm just thinking about writing a book one day. This is hot stuff. (laughs) And a few verses later, we get even more of the same. Uh, You know, uh, in a very intriguing little detail, uh, we find Paul and Luke at the home of this guy called Manasseh, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but we're told there in Acts that he was one of the early disciples. (sighs) Gold dust for the journalist, right? Maybe this guy was there at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe this is the guy who was standing under the sycamore fig tree and actually saw Zacchaeus do what he did and say what he said. Out comes the moleskin. Luke scribbles it all down. And the accuracy of what he writes is simply flabbergasting. Now, you might be somewhat surprised to hear me say that. You know, after all, this is a gospel. It's jam-packed with miracles and prophetic fulfillments and all sorts of things that we know can't happen in our enlightened times, right? And yet that enlightened view is somewhat embarrassed uh, by the sheer quality and the obvious contemporaneity of Luke's history. You see, in the course of Luke and Acts, Luke mentions a vast number of kind of... uh, public officials whose existence and names and dates we can verify from other sources, governors, procurators, tetrarchs, and so on. And uh, as we look in other accounts and at things that are dug out of the ground, we find that he never puts a foot wrong. He always gets his times and names and things spot on. Uh, He's also dead on in geographical matters. He correctly allocates the towns in his narrative to their correct Roman provinces for the period that he's writing, despite the fact that actually Roman provincial boundaries were being moved around quite often. That's common, isn't it, in our modern political era? And they did exactly the same thing for exactly the same reasons. And yet Luke gets it right each time. He's also seemingly familiar with local idioms of language. So he knows, for example, that the local rulers in Philippi at this time Uh, were called strategois by their people. He knows that the political leaders in Malta at this time were called protos. He knows that the uh, Thessalonians called their governors politarchs, despite actually the fact that that word doesn't occur anywhere else in classical literature. And so for the longest time, that was thought by, uh, you know, sceptical scholars to be an example, finally, of Luke making a mistake until, sad to say, someone dug something out of the ground in Thessalonica that actually has the word on it. Sorry about that. You know, remember, Luke wasn't able just to sit down and Google this stuff either, was he? You know, if Luke's gospel was really put together by some kind of fourth century hoaxer, as that notoriously reliable historian Dan Brown would have us believe, how in the world would that person know what Maltese people called their rulers 300 years before? That's not a trivial question. You see, sadly for the skeptics, the text of Luke's gospel argues powerfully for the most boring but also the most radical of all possible conclusions that the person we've always thought wrote it probably really did and the things that he wrote probably really happened. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about that and I'd be delighted to spend some time with anyone who wants to kind of push further into those things. Um, But I think it's a striking fact for you to bear in mind 
uh, here as you head on this uh, adventure into Luke's gospel. I want to encourage you to have confidence in Luke as a historian. Even secular historians regard Luke as a very, very faithful witness to first century history. This is a truly remarkable document written by an author with an extraordinary degree of access uh, to the events of Jesus' life, drawing on an amazing breadth of sources and with a proven eye for detail. If you want to find out what really happened in the life of Jesus, you've come to the right place. But that's not all that we find here uh, in the introduction to this book. Because Luke goes on now to tell us something about his method and his purpose. We'll look at uh, those things briefly. First of all, thinking about his method, Luke tells us that he has it in mind to write, what does he say, an orderly account. Now that might not seem too big of a deal. You know, oh, that's great. I'm glad that Luke wrote an orderly account. Ho hum. Um, but actually it has a, a, a real impact on us as we think about wanting to not just read it for interest, but read it so that we can obey it. You know, what is it that Luke, that, what is it that Luke's material really means here for us? You see, if Luke hadn't set out to write an orderly account, if in fact he had said to Theophilus, you know, you know what? I've just got all these notes from all these places in a folder. I'm just going to send it to you like you figure it out. Um, that would change the way that we read it, wouldn't it? You know, we might pay attention to the fragments, but we wouldn't go looking for some kind of larger structure and get any clues from the way it's put together. But as things stand with his claim that in fact he is writing something for us which is carefully thought out in terms of its order and shape, we have to start looking at this book as a book and not just as a kind of telephone directory of Jesus tidbits, which sadly is often the way that we come to these great books of history, isn't it? Is it significant then that Luke uh, records the parables of Jesus pairing up examples with male and female subjects next door to each other. Right after the parable of the woman who loses the coin, we get the parable of the man who loses his son. Right after the parable of the persistent widow, we get the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Why is that? Not because Luke has just kind of slung this stuff together any which way and that's the way it fell out. No, he's trying to teach us through the way he composes his material that the gospel is for men and women equally right? You can't find a verse in Luke's gospel, you know, Luke 28 verse 28 that says, oh, by the way, the gospel of Jesus is for men and women equally. So you can stick that on the back of your car. But it's there, isn't it? It's not written down, but it's still there in the text. Is it significant that Luke's gospel divides neatly into two halves with a a split line that happens at chapter 9 verse 51 where we read, knowing that the time for him to be taken up to heaven was approaching Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. You bet it's significant that that's right at the center of Luke's gospel because he wants us to grasp the fact that the central purpose of Jesus' life and ministry is going to the cross. Again, there's no verse that says that, but you see that the structure of the book says that. So as you guys prepare yourselves to drink uh, from this great book of the Bible over the next year, you need to gear yourself up for the fact that your thirst is going to be quenched, not just by the things that Luke says, but by the way that he says them and where he puts them, right? And actually, you're in extremely capable hands, because Rod and Brandon and Will and Dan Mike will do a fantastic job with that, as they habitually do. Um, And uh, that's probably enough to say about that from our text here. But as we move on uh, from there, we find Luke moving on from method now to purpose. 
Why is he taking the trouble to write all this down in the first place? Well, because he wants Theophilus to know the certainty of the things that he's been taught. Did you see that there? That's a pretty direct statement of a need that we all have in our Christian lives, isn't it? So I want to ask you all squarely, do you know the certainty of the things that you've been taught? You know, I lived here, had the privilege of living here and worshipping this church for five years, and I know that there's a lot of pressure here in West Michigan to act like you know it. But do you really know it? Have you really thought about it? Or are you carefully avoiding thinking about it in case the illusion collapses and you're left with a hole in the ground where your faith used to be? This is a question especially for our students, I think, for those of you here who are our students. Do you know the certainty of the things that you've been taught? Some of you may have grown up in the church and maybe never had the need to frame the question, you know, what if all of this is fiction? But that approach uh, has got a real short shelf life in higher education these days. Your college courses are going to put you on a collision course with this kind of thinking. And on balance, I think that's probably good. You see, there isn't a single passage in the New Testament that encourages us to pursue an unexamined faith. And the people who came to believe in Jesus in the first century were converted out of paganism, out of atheism, out of traditional Judaism. Uh, Those were the dominant philosophies of their day. And these people left those things behind uh, because they had a reason to do so, right? Theophilus himself needed a reason to believe in Jesus in a world that thought like novel religious ideas like the ones that he had adopted were dangerous to the society, And we're not in such a different place from that today, are we? You know, people that we meet want to know why we can believe in something that seems to come from so long ago. Good question. Why can you? Can you answer that? People that we meet want to know how we can stand for a philosophy that reserves salvation for a few who know and accept the gospel and then by implication reserves it from others who don't. That's a good question. That's a heartbreaking question. People that we meet want to know how we can stomach a religion which they've heard contradicts some of the basic conclusions of science. I want to push back strongly on that and ask whether that's really true. But the question that we've got to get to grips with is can we do it? Do we know how to handle that sort of thing or are we going to end up being pushed into retreat mode? I think actually... For many of us, we're, we're pushed into cloud cuckoo mode, you know, dividing our faith and the rest of our lives into two kind of hermetically sealed worlds, uh, making sure that they never touch or talk to each other for fear of what one might do to the other. But that's not what Luke is about here in this gospel. Of course, it's scary to fake questions, face questions like these if we've breathed our Christianity in with the air and we've uh, never thoroughly investigated it for ourselves. But that's only natural, isn't it? That, that, that's not a, an un unexpected kind of fear. Believe me, there are plenty of students in Oxford who experience exactly the reverse, uh, you know, when they realize that they've breathed their atheism in with the air and they've never seriously considered the arguments for spiritual things. But our great privilege as believers is that our faith can bear the weight of our questions. Luke wants Theophilus to know the certainty of what he's been taught. And he's not afraid to give him reasons for it. His argument for Christianity isn't, oh, just believe it. 
I'm the pastor, I told you. His argument is, let me show you. Let me show you that it makes historical sense. He doesn't want Theophilus to hide his uncertainties and just pretend that everything is okay. He wants him to confront his uncertainties with facts. Facts that are certainly stretching, sometimes deeply disturbing and unsettling. But facts nonetheless on which his life can be solidly built. And as we read his gospel, we can go on that same journey. And I'd really encourage you to do so. This is the kind of church where I hope you'll find freedom uh, to explore those kinds of questions and grow as you do. But that's not all that Luke has got for us here in this section. You see, Luke's motive in writing this book is is that Theophilus might know the certainty of the things that he's been taught. But that begs the question, doesn't it, what exactly has Theophilus been taught? Now, of course, we need to engage in a little bit of educated speculation here. Um, We don't know exactly who Theophilus was or where he lived. But I think the very fact that Luke and Theophilus know each other surely tells us something. For these two men to have come into one another's uh, world, they must have met in a church that Luke attended or on one of the kind of missionary journeys that Paul and Luke did together. And um, that rather suggests to me that what Theophilus had been taught was the kind of message preached by Paul. Remember from our introduction how close Paul and Luke were? Paul is Luke's, uh, sorry, Luke is Paul's Mr. Reliable. And so it strikes me as significant that Luke writes what he writes to increase the certainty of precisely that kind of person. You see, surely you would think if you wanted to uh, increase the certainty of the kind of person who had heard the gospel from Paul or one of his companions, well, you would read them, uh, you'd write them something maybe like the, the letter to the Romans. But Luke, despite being more thoroughly steeped in Paul's theology than any of us ever will be, decides to write a gospel. And that's a striking fact, isn't it? You see, there are some people who, are, uh, who want to tell us that Jesus and Paul don't actually belong in the same conversation. I wonder whether you've come across these guys or been influenced by them. You know, Jesus is the wise, kind, infant-kissing, tree-hugging founder of Christianity. And Paul is the Johnny-come-lately ex-Pharisee on a guilt trip, turning the whole thing into a theological minefield. You're familiar with that kind of you know, a caricature. We like Jesus, but Paul, not so much, rises the cry of the contemporary church from its 2020 vantage point 2,000 years after any of the relevant facts actually happen. But now look at it from a different angle. From 60 AD, to be precise, from the perspective of one of Paul's closest colleagues, a diligent student of the life and ministry of Jesus to boot, Dr. Luke. And what do we find? We find that in his mind... The ministry of Paul and the life story of Jesus are in total harmony. To the point where Luke thinks the two things naturally strengthen and reinforce one another, right? The way that Luke sees it, Jesus and Paul are marching straight down the same street. Does Luke think perhaps that the account of Jesus' death is a little bit light on justification by faith and needs some of that injecting into it? I can point you to some modern pastors who... Uh, seem to think so. They think that justification by faith is some kind of later Pauline insertion or invention. But that clearly wasn't Luke's opinion. And if it comes to a question of whose opinion is more reliable, you know what? I pick Luke. Luke saw no need to turn his gospel into Romans because all the raw materials for Romans are right here already. 
When he had the chance to help Theophilus know the certainty of the things that he had been taught, he simply told him what Jesus did and said. Let me tell you a story here about a friend of mine called Stan. Stan drives a Studebaker, uh, pretty much one-of-a-kind classic Studebaker that he rebuilt himself from scratch. Uh, Stan also happens to be the author of a book about restoring Studebakers. In fact, I guess Stan is probably a world authority on Studebaker carts. When it comes to Studebaker, Stan is Mr. Reliable. Now imagine that Stan gets into correspondence uh, with someone who's bought his book and used it to restore a Studebaker of their own. Let's call this person Fred. And as the letters go backwards and forth, uh, Stan realizes that Fred needs to get some professional help with his car. So what does he do? Well, Stan sends him a recommendation. uh, A garage not too far from Fred's home. Uh, that Stan knows can handle this delicate job. Stan has carefully investigated this garage. Uh, He knows the owner. He knows that they can take care of Fred's problem. Now tell me, as an authority on Studebaker cars, do you think Stan would point Fred to a garage that would screw his car up? Do you think he would recommend a mechanic who would ride roughshod over all the wise advice that Stan put in his book? I don't think so. But that's exactly the situation we have in front of us here, isn't it? Luke is a Paul expert. Luke knows Paul inside out, possibly better than any other person who ever lived. Luke traveled with Paul. He transcribed his sermons. He was Paul's Mr. Reliable. So do we really think that in writing to Theophilus now, Luke would feed him something that cut across and undermined Paul? Come on. The reason why Luke can be Paul's Mr. Reliable in the first place and the author of Luke's Gospel at the same time is that both of those two things are equally authoritative components of the good news that God has given to us and by which we can be saved. Okay? So uh, don't believe that nonsense. So all that brings us uh, now to the end of our passage. But there's still one kind of nagging detail in here that, that was bugging me as I, I read it. I wonder whether... Uh, You can see it there in the the first verse of our text. Uh, It's the way that Luke summarizes the content of the book that he's just about to write. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, he says. Now, that's kind of odd, don't you think? Imagine for a moment all the other ways that he could have written that sentence. I wonder how you would have written it if you were sitting in your study beginning this project, you know, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. That feels like maybe the way we would handle it today, right? That's got kind of book jacket worthy uh, notes to it. Uh, Maybe many have undertaken to write down Jesus' official biography. Uh, Makes it sound like it's kind of official. Um, You know, or many have uh, undertaken to commit the apostles' recollections to paper. That seems to bring us close to the actual evidence. I can think of lots of ways, actually, of, of doing this that seem to... Uh, be a bit more uh, informative than what Luke actually writes. So why does he use the words that he uses? Well, as a minimum, Luke clearly believes that in his generation and in his part of the world, something remarkable has happened, something that was worth recording for his friend Theophilus and for posterity. His talk of things fulfilled among us uh, tells us that he has something momentous to share, doesn't it? This account is going to be more like, I guess, a kind of front-page political feature than it is going to be like the society gossip column. This this, uh, account has got gravitas. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? 
Luke's talk of fulfillment doesn't just mean that he's going to describe something important and profound, although it doesn't mean any less than that. Now Luke is talking about fulfillment because he's about to describe something that he believes was foreseen and foreshadowed in advance. Hundreds of years in advance, in fact. And that is really the most remarkable thing about this, isn't it? Because that claim is his honest opinion as a historian. With all of his instinct for accuracy and his eye for detail, this is the conclusion that this guy comes to. And it tallies with the way that Jesus sees the story himself. Flip forward with me now, if you will, to Luke chapter 24. And we come to Luke's description of uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. These two guys kind of trudging disconsolately away from Jerusalem after the crucifixion, unaware that the stranger walking with them is actually the risen Jesus himself. Oh, wish that hadn't happened. Um, gloomily, they, they tell him their story. How they believe that the rabbi that they've been following was actually the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for since the dawn of time. And how their hopes have been dashed by his untimely death. So that even now that resurrection stories are circulating in Jerusalem, they're having none of it. Like, we're done. They can't possibly have imagined what would happen next, could they? Perhaps the stranger would say how sorry he was. You know, describe how he had followed would-be messiahs himself in the past and that such things always ended in tears. But this is what he actually said. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Did you catch that? Jesus thinks the story that Luke has recorded is more than just one remarkable episode in the long winding narrative of human history. No, Jesus thinks this is the pivot point. Jesus thinks this is the terminus. Jesus thinks uh, this story is the reason and the answer for it all. No wonder the disciples' hearts were burning within them as they uh, heard him open up the scriptures and uh, they heard him uh, explain what the whole thing meant. Not just the prophecies, but the entire infrastructure of the Old Testament, the history of Israel, the kings of Israel, the priests of Israel and the temple where they served, the sacrifice of Isaac, the exodus from Egypt, the altar and the offerings, the law's concern for the least and for the lost, the promise of blessing extending to the very ends of the earth, all of it colliding and finding its fulfillment in him. Turn on to the end of the same chapter, you'll see it again. When Jesus appears to his bewildered disciples in the upper room and he tells them, this is what I told you while I was still with you, you dummies. <laughs> that bit's not in there. <laughs> Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And it's not just in Luke, but in Acts as well. In the very last sentence of Acts, just as we find it in the very first sentence of Acts where it's Jesus doing it, uh, at the end of the book, it's Paul in Rome proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Kind of sounds a bit innocuous to us, doesn't it? This, you know, what in the world does the kingdom of God mean? But actually, when you find out what he was saying, it's dynamite. Acts 28, verse 23, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, persuading his hearers about Jesus. You feel that note of the, the ancient expectation suddenly all colliding and coming to fruition in Christ. That's why Luke chose to talk about fulfillment in his summary 
Because this is the very heart of the Christian message. The early church wasn't propelled into world-changing evangelism simply by the belief that something momentous had taken place among them. No, it was propelled into world-changing evangelism by the belief that the God who had spoken to the obscure little nation of Israel in compelling but oh-so-improbable terms about life and its purpose and our desperate need for the Savior that he would one day send, that God was alive and had kept his promise. That was the message of the risen Jesus. And that was the message of the apostles. That was the theme and the song of the early church. And the effect that it had was dramatic, seismic. Uneducated fishermen became uh, the teachers of the academy. Tradition and restriction gave way to freedom and inclusion. Within 300 years, the Roman state itself laid down its arms before the life-changing power of the kingdom of God. And that's the message that you guys have before you as you go into it for the next year. Luke chose to talk about fulfillment in the introduction to his gospel because it was never intended to be a mere biography. Luke didn't write this just for information, but for transformation. He wrote it that his readers then and now might know the certainty of the things that they've been taught. The certainty that comes not just when we know the facts of the story, but when we dare to believe that the God who caused them to be written down so long ago might actually be knocking at the door of our hearts today. And that all that he promised might still be on the table for us and for our friends, for our neighbours and for our colleagues and our children, uh, for us as individuals and as a church. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this amazing book that you have preserved so wonderfully for us and for all that it contains. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would please have your hand uh, on us as we read and study it. We pray, Lord God, that the the reason for it might be uh, made uh, manifest in our in our lives. That it wouldn't just be a you know. A, a great informative account that we would know more about Jesus, but it would be transformative that we might meet the God who caused this to be written, that we might feel the force and the weight of the promises that it contains as promises to us, as things that can change and help us and our neighbours. Lord God, work in us, shape us, and build us as we study and as we learn. And pray that we might meet Uh, the God who caused this to be written as we read it. In his name we pray. Amen. This is how we're going to conclude this early afternoon. You know...